Hey all, how y'all doing? Hope everybody's doing good tonight. I've got a final wrap-up to do on this incredible topic on Joseph Smith and entheogens. And I'm going to focus on this final part on the Kirtland, Ohio School of the Prophets and the Mormon Pentecost and then the Nauvoo Temple materials, which is extremely interesting how these guys set this up. Once again, I would like to do a disclaimer that nobody under the umbrella of Mormon Discussions, Inc. is advocating the use of drugs. We're not talking about doing acid. In Joseph Smith's day, it wasn't about doing the street drugs that are going on today. Not at all. These drugs were natural drugs. They were used with known doses, and they were well understood, and they were utilized for religious purposes, not just to get away from the rat race of life like today's culture tells us and does. Hey, Mark Crispin, good to see you. Gail Capson, good evening. How you doing? So, but none of us are advocating the use of drugs. We're, I'm looking at this from a historical perspective on Joseph Smith on how it really does help fill in a boatload of gaps in some of his actions and some of the events and occurrences that happened within early Mormonism that does not happen today in Mormonism. There is a major element of spirituality that is missing in Mormonism today, and that is due to the lack of use of entheogens, which is quite frankly remarkable. So, hey, Tim Rathbone, good to see you, man. Thanks for coming on. So uh, the idea here that they're going to finish up with, and for those of you who have not seen my other uh, three or four videos on this subject, the discussion I am utilizing is the paper that was written, The Entheogenic Origins of Mormonism, a Working Hypothesis. This was in the Journal of Psychedelic Studies for 2019. This is available online, and it's fundamentally free. So it's Robert Beckstead, Bryce Blankenagel, Cody Milconi, and Michael Winkleman. For those of you who wish to get the full reference, there it is. This is a magnificent study, relatively new, just three years old, and I have gotten terrific mileage out of it on the basis of the connections filling in the gaps of my questions of Mormon history and Christian history and philosophy. And so these guys have done a bang-up job. They do have a Sunstone presentation. You can Google that easy enough. Just type in, go to go to uh, YouTube, hit the search button, and type in Joseph Smith and Entheogens, and you'll get their presentation. Uh, it's really, really a fine presentation. This is an expanded version of it. So without further ado, let me get going. It is 6 o'clock. Looks like there's a few of us here tonight. So the... 1833 visionary endowments associated with washings, anointings, and sacramental wine during sessions of the School of the Prophets. Now, with the theme that the entheogenic sacrament, 
that Joseph Smith opened so very many of his meetings with. This was the purpose that he built the temples. This was the purpose that he was trying to build up the people. He was promising them, yes, we can get you the visions of God and Jesus. And yes, angels can visit you. The spiritual gifts will come upon you, etc. He promised, then he passed the sacrament to them and they received these incredible heavenly manifestations. He delivered and they knew it. That's why they stuck with him through the thick and the thin. Some of them, some of them didn't, some of them did. So, hey, Peter Higgs, good to see you. Doug Vincent, how are you, buddy? Newton Lemos, good to see you too. So folks are coming in. Good to see y'all. This theme of the sacrament, the oil anointings, etc., even in the school of the prophets makes phenomenal sense. March 1833, the meeting of the high priests, Brother Joseph gave a promise that the pure in heart that were present, again, just like I said in my earlier session today, the mindset is pretty cotton-picking important. You have to have the, uh, the right mindset to enjoy the fruits of heavenly visitation. And Joseph Smith, of course, acting the part of the shaman, was guiding the people through this incredible spiritual experience. Not as a con man. I, I've gotten a new angle on this. I actually see it in a new light now. Not so much as a con man, but as a shaman, because he was trying to show the people, look, there is actually a very real way here to get our own theophanies and visitations, truly. And they did. So after he said, the pure in heart were present, should see the heavenly vision, after which, again, the bread and the wine, of course, was distributed by Joseph, after which many of the brethren saw a heavenly vision of the Savior and the concourses of angels and many other things. This is in B.H. Roberts discussing this. During this period, on-demand visions again suggest the administration of an entheogen. This is how it could easily have been done. Mormon elder Zebedee Coltrane reported Joseph Smith confidently promised Coltrane and Oliver Cowdery together, now brethren, we will see some visions. And then they did. It, it, Joseph was pretty much the only one who could make such a promise of on-demand visions, and they received them. The key was knowing how. Yeah. Joseph verbally guided them through a trip to heaven, where they saw Adam and Eve sitting on a golden throne that looked like a celestial lighthouse. Now, this is the Merkava mysticism of the ancient Kabbalistic Jews in the Zohar and the Sefer Yetzirah and the Bahir. Makes you wonder, is this how they were doing the religious visions that they received? This is the mysteries of the kingdom of God, etc. Yeah, very interesting. The shamanic element, the shamanic guide cannot be left out. They do that even all the way up to today. So between 1833 and 36, we don't have any reported visions. Now, this is interesting. There's a three-year hiatus, as it were. Of course, uh, this was a very busy and embarrassing part of the church 
because they were dealing with so many accusations of all of the wild shenanigans that were understood to be shenanigans from the outside neighbors, those who were not involved in these sacraments, these ordinances, these endowments. And so that makes uh, that makes for a very interesting idea. Now, the whole idea here is the spiritual outpouring associated with the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, March, April, 1836, was called the Mormon Pentecost, the equivalent of the early Christian Pentecost, that was also accused of alcohol intoxication, and it very well could have been. Because we are now understanding through the vast researches of Carl Ruck, Brian Murarescu, and Peter Kingsley, among many, many others, uh, that early Christianity, their sacraments, were, so to speak, drugged. We now know they were involving entheogens way back then, including Jesus's Last Supper. There's some really good new information on that from Brian Murescu, the Immortality Key. I've shown this before, the Immortality Key, the Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Very powerful book, 2021, just out. Brian is now at Harvard working with a group of scholars dealing with the entheogenic nature of religion in the ancient Christian, the early Christian, and the uh, Greek, the early Greek materials. And so there's going to be some exciting, yet further more scientific analysis of the actual cups discovered archaeologically. They can now do a spectral a spectral analysis of those cups, and they can find out what they were thinking, and they can figure out which entheogens they were using, and they were using entheogens. We now have that. So some some really cool new information is going to be coming up uh, within the next five years, I would say, probably a lot earlier than that. But And yes, I'll be happy to keep you apprised of it when I get wind of it. Um, I have a couple of good sources that I can keep on top of things. The Kirtland Temple endowments, what happened here is something very, very significant. And this kind of sets Joseph Smith and the early Mormons apart from all of the other people who were having their visions, getting groups of people together, but they couldn't maintain a coherent group religion as such. The one thing, well, one of the things that helped set apart the early Mormonism was the creation of a sacred space. And the Kirtland Temple endowments were decorated with labyrinths, gonfalons, spirals, and squares within squares, and a prolonged ceremony to boot that included a day of fasting and the reenactment of the Passion narrative and Pentecost, the reenactment of it. In other words, they were putting themselves into it themselves. They were having their own Pentecost. They weren't merely doing what today's Sunday school and sacred meetings do, reading about someone else's. They were in it altogether. That was one of the key significant differences here. This included the washing of feet and the anointing of the head with holy oil. In the evening, the fast was broken with what? 
a communion of bread and wine sacrament, of course, entheogenic. Again, as the reenactment of the Last Supper, this was followed by a ceremony that mimics the high point of Christian redemption. They stayed up all night. This was a reenactment of Gethsemane. You see the significance of Joseph Smith the shaman in making sure, doing everything he knew within his power based on his knowledge and information, based on all of the physicians that he had around him helping him, of getting everybody involved in their own heavenly situation. For the most part, it worked. So in serving the wine, here's what Joseph Smith explained. The wine was consecrated and would not make them drunk. They began to prophesy, pronouncing blessings upon their friends. So with increasing confidence in his entheogenic sacraments, Joseph Smith enabled hundreds to receive visions during the dedication ceremonies of the Kirtland Temple, but only if willing to participate in the Mormon ordinances. And then his enthusiasm, of course, was tempered when so much criticism came back on him. And so for a while, he toned it way down. Uh, a church member with the last name of McWhitney complained that the wine consumed in the temple ordinances was actually mixed liquor and that the Mormon leaders intended to get the audience under its influence, so visions experienced were believed to be of the Lord's doing. See, that was one of the outside criticisms, and that stung Joseph Smith. He, he was not trying to dupe people so much as get them to see the visions that he has seen so that he wouldn't have to keep defending himself, and he would gain a modicum of credibility, as would his followers. See? Everybody on a democratic basis was to receive the power of the ordinances. In Joseph Smith's day, those were the real McCoy. So the Edenic tree, now let me explain this. This was really an eye-opener for me. I, I thought this was one of the better parts. The organization and the context of the anticipated Nauvoo Endowment provide for the covert administration of entheogenic anointings and sacraments, although for this endowment, the sacrament included partaking of the fruit from the tree in the Garden of Eden. They actually enacted that. That was one of the key anchor points of Joseph Smith's shamanism, the eating. There was always something to be consumed in the ordinances. Very, very critical. Yeah. Following purifying ceremonies of washing and oil anointing, a new name was given to the initiates, who were informed was connected with Christ's promise in Revelation 2.17. You've never heard this in the temple endowment today or when you went through, did you? No, of course not. They've taken all this stuff out. They don't do this stuff anymore. Theirs is the placebo. Joseph Smith was the real McCoy. And in Revelation 2.17, the discussion was of a white stone. Mushrooms were called white stones. Little round mushrooms. They looked like balls when they were seen from a distance on the ground. Or stones. So fruit 
which represented the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was plucked from the tree and eaten by the initiate. Here we go. There it is. The uh, Nauvoo Endowment would avoid the problems of math entheogenic visionary experience by conducting initiates in small groups. So that was a good solution to the problem. And they were small groups within the seclusion of the temple. So receiving the sacred food also fulfilled the other promise of Revelation 2.17 that they would be given to eat of the hidden manna. Again, this is very important. Their initiation followed both the pattern of alchemical Freemasonry with its entheogenic elixir and philosopher's stone and the pattern set by Joseph Smith when he ate of the hidden manna and he acquired his white stone. Yeah, following this, the initiates engaged in an interactive entheogenic journey through the fall of Adam and the redemption of man by Jesus Christ, after which they would then pass through a curtain into a beautifully decorated celestial room and the presence of God. So here are these things that are crucial for the success of a heavenly vision. These guys enumerate the items here. To fulfill his promise of coming into the presence of God in the Nauvoo Temple to all of his followers who went through, Joseph Smith would have offered, one, an overall sense of the holy, and with that, a mindset of sacredness. Two, an impressive and uplifting multi-storied edifice with esoteric symbols inside of it and outside and multiple special purpose rooms. Three, trusted attendants to guide initiates through each aspect of the ceremony to prompt attendees should they experience confusion and to provide assurance if distress occurs. And the fourth item is an entheogen that would not produce the indecorous symptoms and outside criticism such as the church experienced during the visionary period in the Kirtland Temple era. After receiving the new name, an entheogenic anointing and ingesting Edenic fruit, Converts basked in emotional and physical safety designed. It was designed to provide their spiritual experiences. Of such consequences, it would enhance the joy of living, and it would provide comfort during periods of struggle. This was the idea. Now, the Nabu and Theogen, what was it? Hey, Patty Cake, welcome. Hey, Mr. Natural, good to see you too here. Good deal. And Pat has a thought. Yeah, everything was stoned. Yeah, that's for sure. Now, the Nauvoo Entheogen. The procurement of an entheogen for the Nauvoo Temple would not be as easy as harvesting Doctora seeds found growing in the surrounding countryside and used as ornamentals in some gardens. So because of the Kirtland experience, Doctora as an ethnic theogen would draw unwanted attention. So gathering enough entheogenic mushrooms for the rapidly increasing church population, and at the time, we're talking 10,000 people, man. (laughs) That's, That's a boatload of folks, right? 
Well, this certainly wasn't practical. So several physicians in positions of church leadership would have known about the medicinal and medical use of ergot in obstetrics and could easily extract ergot's water-soluble entheogenic component. And in Nauvoo, ergot was readily available. It was easy to hide and of high potency, making it an ideal entheogen for burgeoning church populations. So, and then they deal with the peyote entheogen because of the Native Americans and the interaction and interrelationship between Joseph Smith, the early Mormons, and the Native American Indians. Definitely there was a relationship. The Potawatomi passed through Nauvoo on their way to and from their hunting grounds in Iowa Territory. And they could have served as an early bridge between the Indians of the Southwest, who were the Comanche and Osage, and Joseph Smith for the delivery of peyote to Illinois for the Nauvoo Temple. Prairie Potawatomi began actively trading peyote imported from South Texas, at least by 1870, and perhaps even earlier. In August 1841, a large group of Fox and Sauk Indians, including 100 chiefs, visited Nauvoo in 1841 with their leader, Chief Geokuk, forming a personal relationship with Joseph Smith and his wife, and Emma exchanged recipes for herbal medicines with the wife of Chief Geokuk. According to Newell and Avery in 1994, their book, page 278, Joseph Smith had a significant number now. This was a significant number of Native American contact, contacts during the Nauvoo period. Any of these contacts could have provided for the delivery of peyote to Nauvoo. So it was most likely with the Potawatomi. So, according to LDS historian Jay Todd, this is a fantastically fascinating concept. When I first heard about this, I could not believe that Joseph Smith would do this. It makes no sense until we get to this entheogenic proposal. Here is what occurred. Several of the Potawatomi chiefs called to see the Nauvoo House and Temple. Nauvoo was a prominent spot for Indians, and Indian burial grounds abounded in the area anyway, so they were always around, of course. However, not finding Joseph present, the Potawatomi explained they were not free to talk and did not wish to communicate their feelings until they could see the great prophet. They returned in July. And here's what they told Smith when they came back. We talked with the great spirit, and the great spirit has told us that he had raised up a great prophet. We will now wait and hear your word. After Smith spoke, Smith had an ox killed for them, and they were given fresh horses for their journey home. During one of the several visits of Potawatomi to Nauvoo, Joseph gave the Potawatomi captain a significant portion of the Egyptian papyri from which he translated the work of Scripture and said to have written by the hand of the biblical Abraham. Well, these papyri were from a large collection purchased for $2,400 earlier by Smith. 
The value in 1835 represents $70,000 in the 2019 value. It is a mystery why Smith would give away such valuable papyri when he anticipated showing them on display for a fee and also anticipating translating the book of Joseph from the same collection of papyri. The gesture is striking. Was Smith negotiating for access to native entheogens? Such negotiation is suggested by the timing of these interactions with the Potawatomi, the Fox Indians, and the Sauk Indians, beginning within weeks of the discrediting of Ergot in the Brink trial by Smith's inordinate gift to these representatives, and by earlier exchanges of herbal information between the Smith family and the family of the local Sauk chief, Geokuk. Lyman White was also sent on a mission to try to acquire territory in Texas, and Joseph aimed to establish colonies to procure resources for the body of the central hub of the Mormon community at Nauvoo. So what resource was the planned Texas Mormon Indian colony intended to provide? Texas was a keystone to peyotism. Peyote grew in abundance in southwest Texas, especially along the Texas-Mexico border and the Rio Grande River, with an active peyote trade that only abated in 1959. That's two years before I was born. In this expedition, Joseph Smith may have attempted to plant a Mormon Indian colony in the heart of peyote country, where his colony could harvest thousands of peyote buttons, just what the thousands of Nauvoo saints would need if peyote was the entheogen used in the completed Nauvoo temple. So this kind of sheds new light on this idea of Joseph Smith trying to get to a Texas outpost. Very interesting there. Now, here is the part that I was so excited to share with you that I was la-la-la-la lying about earlier this afternoon. True, it is somewhat speculative, but it's speculation with a profound possibility, probability, actually. Among Joseph Smith's possessions, during his death was a finely tooled, sandy-colored seer stone. I'm going to show you this picture. I'm going to have to show it to you this way. So it doesn't seep through. There is Joseph Smith's peyote stone. That's one of his seer stones. These gentlemen call this the Joseph Smith peyote stone. Here is why. Unlike any other he used for scrying, this stone is smooth in texture with a hole through the center surrounded by eight smaller indentations of alternating sizes, where the central flower and tufts of the peyote button have been cored out. It is comparable to the eight-lobed peyote button in figure 33. The stone mimics the peyote button of the actual plant. Now, that is incredible. 
that's fun. But we're not done yet. Hang on. Don't get too excited yet because there's more here. The coin-like ridged circular edge of Smith's stone not seen on the peyote button signifies the visionary nature of peyote. Aha! Now we have the key for why Joseph Smith wanted access to a lot of peyote and why he was sending exploratory parties down to Texas. Because peyote causes visions, something Joseph as a seer was well known for. The alternating sizes of the indentations on this stone are somewhat similar to the peyote button, and they are, in fact, comparable to the alternating size of the tufts, an eight-lobed Plains Indian peyote pouch currently displayed in the Plains Indian Museum in Cody, Wyoming, also shows this interesting feature. So here we have the stone and the peyote button, and there is the Indian pouch. Same principle, and that's the Indian peyote pouch for the sacred medicine men. Now, the nomadic Aboriginal people of the American Plains, including the, and then he names a whole bunch of Pawnee, Osage, Arapaho, Sioux, Otto, Kiowa, Comanche, all kinds of Indians, and the Fox Indians. Most of these groups were, west, were located westward into the Plains following the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and they interacted with Joseph Smith. All of these Indian groups were interacting with Joseph Smith. And the Potawatomi in the 1840s had been resettling west of Nauvoo within the cultural boundaries of the Plains Indians groups, providing an opportunity for the transmission of information about peyote to Joseph Smith. According to Omer Stewart, the Lipan Apache Indians in the vicinity of Laredo in 1760 to 1850s learned all of the properties of peyote and the ritual for its use from other Indians who taught peyoteism to the Comanche and the Kiowa. Their northern allies in 1830 was a possible route for the spread of peyoteism toward the northeast from Texas proposed by Stewart and included by the report by R.A. Smith. They state the demand for Mexican livestock, captives and plunder increased after American commissioners made treaties of amity and trade with the Indians of the South Plains in the 1830s. Their deepest penetrations in Mexico put the Indians at points of thousands of miles straight south of their home range in Kansas and Oklahoma, so we can suspect the warriors might have learned about and experimented with the little spineless cactus, peyote, because that's where it grew. So this is very interesting how peyote has tufts of hair on each of its lobes and a central flower that, if removed, leave a corresponding number of depressions. Native art, as such as the peyote pouch, depicts peyote by the several circular depressions or tufts. You can see that in the peyote pouch. The tufts in each one of the 
you see those three tufts there, there's one tuft there, there's three tufts there, then one, then three, then one, then three. You can see that uh, pattern there. And this examination of Joseph Smith's peyote stone shows precisely this same stylization. There is the peyote stone with the same number of circles around a central hole. That was what the peyote stone of Joseph Smith resembled. And then there is other art of peyote. This is an Indian, uh, this is a shaman, an Indian shaman, looking at the five-lobed peyote here. And then there again is a rug with the peyote in the center of it, an Indian rug, and that corresponds very well with Joseph Smith's peyote stone. This central figure here is the same identifying characteristic as Joseph Smith's peyote stone, which the church has identified as an odd seer stone. Is that what it was? Well, the peyote certainly did induce visions, and this is the only stone of this shape and character that Joseph Smith had. So, yeah, it's a seer stone, all right. Not used for translating documents, used for going to heaven, seeing visions, so on and so forth. This spiritual light is what poured out of the scalloped edges around the stone. It was the seed. Here's the, here's the peyote. Here's the light. There's scalloped edges and there's more light in the rings. And then there's scalloped edges on the very outside of this, and you can see the light coming out all over the place, all around this. Peyote showed you light, heavenly light. That's why the Indian shamans valued it so immensely, and realistically why Joseph Smith would have wanted to have access to peyote also, and he did through the Indians. So that is a most interesting thing. And then Lyman White's, uh, the peyote stone broadly resembles Native American gorgets, but has a more intricate representation carved into it and compares well to Native American representations of peyote. Lyman White's mission to Texas his idea, Joseph Smith's, his vision for the colonies in Texas was to span the globe, and Missouri was going to be, Nauvoo, Illinois, and Independence, Missouri, was going to be the western hub of a worldwide kingdom of God. This was his idea. Jerusalem was going to be the eastern hub. Independence, Missouri, was going to be the western hub in a worldwide network of the kingdom of God. So this was the idea. How did he acquire the peyote stone? We just don't know. Perhaps he traded it with one of the Indian chiefs. We're just not quite sure. We know that they were visiting him significantly between 1841 and 1844, the time of his death. Just weeks after the Texas expedition party's return, Smith asked Lyman White to establish a Texas colony, and he gave Lyman White a seer stone. Now, this is amazing. 
He told him he would need this stone to receive revelation pertaining to his colonization work. The stone Smith gave White was a seer stone, but it wasn't Joseph's peyote stone. He retained that until his death, with the single exception of giving Oliver Cowdery his brown stone in 1829. Smith is not reported to have given anyone else such a stone until he gave this one to White in April 1844. This unique action on Joseph's part and its timing are both readily explainable if, if the negotiating party delivered the peyote stone to Smith in Nauvoo. Also noteworthy is that Joseph Smith gave Lyman White not just any seer stone, but it was specifically a white stone. We have noted above that the white stone has a place in Joseph Smith's biography, biblical interpretation and theology, drawing on Jesus' promise in Revelation 2.17, the young Joseph Smith had searched for a white stone to use in scrying. This biblical promise of receiving a white stone also included the promise of receiving the hidden manna to eat a promise gift that appears to have materialized in Smith's Amanita Muscara, mushrooms, or Doctora, in the family's sacred grove. So since Smith's own experience of becoming a seer included obtaining a white stone used to find entheogenic hidden manna, Smith's bestowal to white would have been only a halfway boon had he stopped there. Joseph Smith's instruction to Lyman White on how to be a seer on the same pattern as Smith would have included instructions on using hidden manna as an entheogen to facilitate White's experience of second sight with the seer stone. So the manna in Judeo-Christian scripture, some researchers have found it to, they have claimed it was a psychoactive, variously identified as a water-soluble extract of ergot, according to Mercur, and the Amanita muscara mushroom from other researches, and also known to some as the white stone. The Amanita muscara was the white stone in some respects. Uh, such a reading was known in early Christianity. It was judging by the number of works of art featuring the Amanita Muscaria, and I showed those earlier this afternoon with Jesus laying in a mushroom and the mushrooms being painted with Christ in a uh, 1200 piece of Christian art, which was fascinating. So Joseph Smith would want to transmit his entheogenic knowledge to a trusted friend who had successfully ingested entheogens. But of course, Lyman White had responded well to the administration of an entheogen in 1831 when he turned white and saw the Savior and remained a loyal friend to Joseph Smith even after Smith's death. So it seems apparent that White's experience and loyalty resulted in Smith's gift of a white stone to locate the entheogens in Texas. Apparently successful, White would have visions of Smith himself years after the latter's death, and White could easily carry 20,000 peyote buttons weighing 60 pounds to Joseph Smith in Nauvoo. So that is some fascinating materials. 
And then after the death of Joseph Smith, they do describe the schismatic Mormonism and the, the, the papyri were actually returned from the Indians back to the Mormons. Brigham Young uh, took it. Um, yeah, it was Brigham Young that it was given back to. And then from there on, they did not claim to have visions like Joseph Smith and the early Mormons. And this is so remarkable, I have to read this. I really have to read this. This is wild. Joseph Smith told early converts to expect somatology-associated religious visions and spiritual ecstasies, to prepare converts for the entheogen-facilitated spiritual manifestations and the associated symptoms, Joseph Smith explained it this way. It is more powerful in expanding the mind, in enlightening the understanding and storing the intellect with present knowledge of a man who is of the literal seed of Abraham than one that is a Gentile, though it may not have half as much visual effect upon his body. For as the Holy Ghost falls upon one of the literal seed of Abraham, it is calm and serene, and his whole soul and body are only exercised by the pure spirit of intelligence." while the effect of the Holy Ghost upon a Gentile is to purge out the old blood and make him actually of the seed of Abraham, that man that has none of the blood of Abraham naturally must have a new creation by the Holy Ghost. Therefore, stark was the difference between the many visions that were had in early Mormonism and the lack of visions after Smith's death. This distressed the Mormons. They are the ones that begin asking tough questions of their leadership. They said, what happened? Where are all the angelic beings? Where are all the heavenly visitors? Where is Jesus? Where is Father? They, nobody was seeing any of that anymore. And so the Mormon apostle, the Mormon apostle, George A. Smith, responded in 1867 to these thousands of concerns that were being voiced. His response is fundamentally significant for us to see the difference. The question has often arisen among us, why is it that we do not see more angels, have more visions, and do not see greater and more manifestations of power? That's the same question a lot of us are asking right now today, isn't it? Well, this is in 1867, so see, things haven't changed much. What followed is revealing. Apostle Smith recalled that in 1836, the Kirtland era, right? The filled Kirtland temple with over 400 men of the priesthood, most of whom witnessed 
great manifestations of power, such as speaking in tongues. They were seeing visions. There was administration of angels. Many individuals bore testimony that they saw the angels. David Whitmer himself bore testimony that he saw three angels passing up the south aisle, and there came a shock on the house like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And almost every man in the house arose. And hundreds of them were speaking in tongues, prophesying or declaring visions, almost with one voice. Then Apostle Smith diminished the value of these experiences. Here's what he said. A number of them who manifested the greatest gifts and had the greatest manifestations have fallen out of the wayside. You look around among us, and they are not here. But where you find men who have turned away and have got terribly afflicted with self-conceit, you will find those who on that occasion and similar occasions received great and powerful manifestations, and when... The Spirit came on them, it seemed, to distort the countenance and cause them to make tremendous efforts in some instances. So reflected in Smith's next remark is the post-Joseph Smith Mormon attitude regarding public religious manifestations and spiritual ecstasies, speaking favorably of non-visionary revelation only by mere inspiration, George Albert Smith spoke of faithful converts who researched the knowledge of the things of God by the power of the Spirit and sought not after signs and wonders, and when the Spirit rested upon them seemed to produce no visible demonstration. Of that, there can be no question. <laughs> they downed, played all of it. And they knew how it was being happened, and they didn't bring it back. So he knew there was a significant change in the convert's visionary and ecstatic experience following the death of Joseph Smith. So direct and personal experience with angels and God this was dumbed down. It gave way to revelation described as inspiration or else inspirational manifestations. And of course, today, nobody sees anything. In every case involving entheogen use in early Mormonism, a change in mental and emotional state was apparent to the non-intoxicated observers, both in and outside of the church, right? And so that cessation of observable symptoms which are associated with post-Joseph Smith's spiritual experience and the lack of visions and ecstasies reported by his successors, all of this provide persuasive evidence that Joseph Smith did make use of entheogens. Even more noticeable are the many contemporary reports of entheogen-facilitated visions and ecstasies echoing those of Joseph Smith and early Mormon converts even if they're not Mormons. 
So the cessation of convert and leadership, visionary and ecstatic experience following the death of Joseph Smith, may partly inform the observation of Sterling Professor of Humanities at Yale University, Harold Bloom, when he observed, I am puzzled by the current Salt Lake City hierarchy. If there is any spiritual continuity between Joseph Smith and Gordon B. Hinckley, a prophet and Utah successor to Joseph Smith, I am unable to see it. No disrespect is intended by that observance. And yet, that means Mormonism has apostatized. That's my saying that. Mormonism has apostatized from the Joseph Smith method. They've changed it, and now all they can do is make money. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars, but they don't have any communion with heaven whatsoever. Fascinating, isn't it? Very, very fascinating. And that I think I think uh, that's pretty much. Oh, whoop, whoop, whoop. I think that's pretty much. And then uh, Joseph's grandson, Frederick Smith, one of the prophets of the reorganized church, also utilized peyote in their, in the reorganized churches, rituals and meetings, etc. And he was a firm believer in his grandfather, Joseph Smith, and his use of the entheogens. Only he focused on peyote. Uh, we're not actually completely sure whether it was ergot or else it was one of the mushrooms that Joseph Smith was utilizing or a combination of all of them, which actually is probably a bit more realistic. So that is basically the conclusion that we have an interesting historical situation with Joseph Smith that is only just recently being put together in a coherent manner um, with the rest of the story. This is a Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Why was Joseph Smith such a spiritual giant and no one succeeding past him was? We now know why. So for these guys to simply claim they receive revelation, so what? Anybody does that. The question is, have you seen Jesus? And you know today's Mormon apostles' answers. They get so squeamish. They get so uptight. They come up with all kinds of crazy, silly shit that never entered Joseph Smith's mind because he didn't have to say no. He didn't have to justify it. He said, well, not only have I had visions, you can too. And then they did. But today's apostles and prophets, special witnesses of Jesus, they say, oh, well, our experiences are too sacred to talk about. Too sacred to talk about? Joseph Smith told everyone, and so did all of the early Mormon apostles. You don't have to go as far back as the New Testament, where they all also went and told the world because Jesus told them to. No, Joseph Smith and the early Mormons trumpeted it out in the revelations. Today's Mormons, 
Eh, not so much. They're kind of blasé placebo boys, is what I would call them. Even Boyd K. Packer, he said, well, it, it, it's technically not Jesus himself that we are testifying of, but of his holy name. That's how bankrupt they are. Yes. The difference is absolutely between black and white. So that, that's basically what I wanted to share with you tonight. Um, I'm here at about an hour. I've been doing a boatload of this, this uh, entheogen stuff. I think I have five uh, videos that I've done this weekend. So anyway, I have a smudge again. Holy cow. I did clean that. I swear I did. Hold on. I'll try to clean it. Did that take away the smudge maybe? Did that help? So anyway, um, thank you, Pat has a thought. Yeah, I am working overtime a little bit on this subject because it's so fascinating. Um, it, it's just, it's quite fun. Yeah, of daddy. There you go. Yeah. Instead of worrying about having visions and spiritual ecstasies and improving your own morale and attitude, etc., uh, Huff Daddy makes a great point. We now know Jesus doesn't want church members to call each other Mormons because it offends him and it's a victory for Satan. I I, I mean the ludicrous triviality of Jesus's revelations to the Mormon leaders now is comparing a kindergartner to a college professor that has tenure. tenure. It, it's just mind-boggling how utterly, insipidly blasé Mormonism has become. They've now become just another Christian sect. And they're very happy with it. Well, I mean, it makes them hundreds of billions of dollars because they've dumbed down the congregations to the point to where nobody dares do any critical thinking because you can get into trouble. And I can testify to that. I was talked about that a few times uh, before I quit being an apologist too. So anyway, oh, well, thank you, Debbie Joe. I love you guys too. Yes. Did that not work? I, I used a microfiber cloth. Anyway. Oh, well, thanks, Pat has a thought. Yeah, I, I, I like talking about it too. And I've got all kinds of stuff, uh, stuff that I'm going to be uh, bringing out on so many uh, esoteric aspects of what should be in Mormonism that used to be. Now, this is interesting because I know there are so many people and I'm not criticizing. I'm really, uh, I promise, I'm not criticizing this. But there are so many people who condemn Joseph Smith as the con man. And I think they're misfocused. After studying this for a bit and presenting these videos, I don't think it's Joseph Smith that the con man is. I think it's all of his successors. I think it's today's Mormonism. They're the ones conning people. 
you know, Utah, the high state, uh, the high fraudulent state, the MLM country. Yeah. Utah today, Mormonism today. Joseph Smith didn't doesn't appear now to me so much as a con man as such, even though he made some really stupid choices and some egregious errors of which I absolutely am against. He was actually trying to share the heavenly wealth, as it were, with absolutely everybody. He said, oh, don't elevate me above you guys. Don't stand up just because I walk into your room, because you too are going to see Jesus and God, and you too will commune with the angels, and you too will have your visions, and you will prophesy, and you will speak in tongues, etc. And then they turned around and did so. That's pretty staggering. But now that we understand it's an entheogenic-based spirituality, which is entirely legitimate, that goes back into hoary antiquity, back at least to 11,000 years BC, we get it, more or less. But modern man is scared stiff of the unseen realm. Which, incidentally, I just got a new book by Michael Heiser on the unseen realm by a good friend of mine, Ms. Nobody. And Michael Heiser is one of the real serious Bible scholars. He, I like him. He, uh, he delves into the Hebrew extensively in the Council of the Gods. Him and David Bakavoy had a debate in the Farms Review of Books. Uh, it was really exceptionally excellent. Uh, Bakavoy is the Mormon Hebrew expert, along with Daniel McClellan. Daniel McClellan is also, he's not uh, teaching it. Uh, well, neither is Bakavoy now. So, But anyway, yeah, so Michael Heiser has a discussion on the unseen realm from the biblical angle. And I talked a little bit about his book in my previous video to this one. So anyway, um, I am going to, calling the stone a peyote stone is only, oh, well, of course, yes. Calling a mushroom a stone is only speculation, but they did it anyway. <laughs> that was one of the descriptive aspects of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like they say, they don't have the they don't have the smoking gun. They just have lots of bullet holes. So yeah, that that's true though. Carrie, if you could ask Joseph any question, what would it be? Uh, what was the color of the angel's eyes who had the flaming sword threatening to kill you if you didn't practice polygamy? No, I wouldn't ask him that. I don't know. I have to think about it. That might be kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, that, that would be kind of interesting to do. Yeah, very interesting. By the way, welcome, Dan Vogel. Glad you're here. Uh, Geoplanet Jane, good to see you again, hon. Yeah, and Mr. Natural. So, Oh, and Renegade Rower. Yeah, Brigham started bringing it down. I do believe it did begin with Brigham. I, I truly do. And then, of course, this brought on speculation that Brigham is actually responsible for Joseph Smith's martyrdom so that he could take over the reins of power. I've seen some of the speculations along that line. Interesting, but I no, I'm not sure. I don't know. There were power struggles. We know that. 
I mean, the moment Joseph Smith died, everybody and their dog jumped up and said, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm the new follower. You know, Sidney Rigdon did that and Brigham Young and James Strang and everybody started jumping up saying, oh, hey, Joseph's son, I'm the success. Of course, then Emma pushed that angle. But and I think she had a major point, too. You know, should it have gone from father to son? Uh, there's some pretty good there's some pretty good arguments on that. So anyway. So <laughs> I'm going to, uh, I'm going to call it good. Uh, I, I am tired. I've had a, I've had a wonderful day. Let's just call it an hour long. Uh, yeah, me too, Mr. Natural. It is a new idea for me to think about. Yeah, sure. You're going to bring up this topic in gospel doctrine. Let us know how that goes for you. <laughs> that would be fun. Oh, thank you, Doug Vincent. That's a very generous donation. Bless your heart. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, geopolitical or geoplanet Jane. Geopolitical. Sorry, I meant geoplanet Jane. So without the good stuff, why did any of the members continue to follow? For one thing, Brigham Young took them out west and it was still very hostile territory. They had to stick together or perish. And so that was part of it. And by, by the time they became a state and acquired statehood, they were pretty much in it together, would be my, would be my superficial answer at the moment, yeah. So, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> Doug Vincent, the money is used for some lens cleaner. I really hope that hasn't gotten uh, moisture in it. I've wiped it off with the with the right kind of cloth. Yeah, there you go. Oh, thank you, Anonymous. That's very kind of you. I Apparently, a lot of you want me to clean that lens. Okay, this is the right type of cloth, and that is the camera. I, I have no idea why it's so difficult to clean off. I have no idea. Oh, well, we'll see. Is there still a smudge? Oh, that's probably a good thing. I'm funny looking now, so. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm going to, uh, BYP needs a hit too. Yeah, sure. I need lots of hits. Just not in the face, please. It's getting worse. Are you serious? Are you guys bluffing me? Is it the light or is it the lens? Oh, heck, I don't know. All right. Well, hey, I'm going to call it a night. I will catch up to you guys here pretty quick pretty soon. Uh, tomorrow's Labor Day. I have the day off. Um, I might do a new a new video just for kicks and giggles. So, oh, thanks, Geoplanet Jane. Yeah, I didn't comb my hair back. I just left it natural. So, oh, the first time listener. Well, thank you. Uh, that is Renegade Rower. Thank you, Renegade Rower. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've, I've got a boatload of stuff I'm going to share with you, I promise. And, uh, Oh, calm down, Huff Daddy. It's all good. Okay, you guys, uh, I'm going to head off. I could potentially see you tomorrow. Uh, maybe, maybe not. We'll see how my day goes. I have a lot of uh, electronic learning to do. I have to go get new brakes on my car, things like that. So at least I get paid to do that. I have a paid day off, which is very nice. So if I make a video, I get paid to do the video, right? So... There we go. There's my justification for it. So, all right, you guys, be good. Do well. Have fun. Thanks for showing up tonight, and I will catch up to you soon. 
You be good and be good at it. And if you can't be good at it, fake it. That's what I do. 